welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Revelation chapter 10 and 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel, from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be here. Um, As the Psalms say, when I was told to come up to the house of God, I was thankful, I was joyful. And Lord, as we open your word, Lord, we're also reminded that we're sinners. We want to confess this morning that we have sinned and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much in our own devices and desires of our own hearts. We've offended against your holy law. We have left things undone that ought to have been done, and we've done things that we ought not to have done. Lord, we know that we would have no hope or peace or future joy if we were not forgiven by the blood of your son, Jesus. And so we come before you this morning and we ask for forgiveness. You've said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I just pray for every believer that's in this room that right now is repentant of their sin. Lord, that you just wash over their conscience right now. Lord, I pray that every believer here who's trusting in you would have their conscience clean would feel the joy of your spirit. And Lord, we, as we come to your word, um, we, we also want to remember our missionaries, Lorian and Holly. We pray, Lord, that you be blessing them. We pray, Lord, that you give them a special sense of your presence and protection and your pleasure this morning. We ask also, Lord, that you be merciful and heal our president and first lady and all those who are infected around them. Lord, we pray that you would do a great healing there. Um, Lord, we ask that you would heal our land. Lord, we pray that in this time of tribulation that you would lead us all, our nation, into repentance and revival. We pray, Lord, that we could move on as a people who love your word as not every single person in our nation, but nationally it would be the theme of our nation that we would turn to your word and love your word and love your son Jesus and trust in him and do works of righteousness and peace and justice. Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity to gather. We're thankful to open your word. We're thankful that your word is true and good and necessary and sufficient. And not only that, on top of that, it's delicious. Lord, it has so many different ways of understanding truth in your word. And as we're in this very unusual part, at least to our taste, a very unusual part of your word, we pray, Lord, that you'd feed us with it. We thank you that you've given us a delicious word because you yourself are a delicious good. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to enjoy your goodness as we consume your word this morning. We pray this in the name and power of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. We're here in a series in the book of Revelation. And if I was to give it a name, I would say, I would call it seeing with new eyes. Because the book of Revelation gives us a new way of seeing. It doesn't tend to give us a lot of new information that the rest of the New Testament doesn't give us. But it gives us these cool graphic images so that we can understand the truths that are in the New Testament in a new way. And the the Revelation 11 does that this morning for us. The uh, Revelation 11 gives us a way of understanding victory 
of seeing what real victory is like. Uh, Revelation 11, I believe, is a one-chapter vignette about the life cycle of the church. We see her witness. We see her persecution. We see her resurrection, ascension, and reign. And it's a beautiful story of how the church wins. So what does victory look like? Um, What does it look like for Christians to win? I think this is a year when Christians are thinking about that a lot. How do we win, right? How do we win? As we see in our world evil growing throughout, we think about, like, how can we defeat this evil? How, how can we help good win and evil lose? How can we have victory over evil? And Revelation 11 does that for us. If chapter 7 focuses on the church's protection, this chapter 11 focuses on the church's victory. If chapter 7 answers the question of how can we remain standing, 11 answers the question of how can we win? And so we're going to look here through uh, Revelation 11, starting at verse 3. I'd love for you guys to actually have a Bible out or the alternative electronic version of whatever that is, because you really want to see this. This is, there's a lot of symbols in here. They come at us fast. They come at us thick. We're not going to be able to hit every symbol of what it means. We're not going to be able to hit every Old Testament connection that's there. It would just take way too much time. Um, One thing I could recommend to you later is look at your cross-references. As you look at the cross-references in a good Bible that has cross-references, you're going to see all types of Old Testament connections. Look those up, and you'll have just a feast for yourself there. But what do we see about how we win? We win the victory through our gospel testimony. Take a look at verse 3. I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Um, We have another vision here full of symbols. What do they mean? Well, let's just get a big picture. Who are these two witnesses? Now, there's a variety of opinions on this, but I'll just give you where I'm coming from. Who are these two witnesses? Well, they're also called two olive trees and two lampstands. Lampstands actually helps us, because if you remember back to chapter 1, what do the lampstands symbolize? Lampstands symbolize the church, right? It helps a lot. This is a symbol of the churches. Revelation 1, 20 says that that's what lampstands symbolize. These two witnesses symbolize the churches. Uh, What are they prophesying? Well, prophesy could be used in a lot of ways. It, It basically just means speaking God's word forth. But we can be more specific. What is their prophecy? If you take a look at verse 7 in chapter 11, God, uh, John calls it their testimony. And testimony throughout Revelation means something very particular. Testimony is about gospel testimony. You remember why John was on the island of Patmos? He was on there because of the testimony of Jesus. He was on there for communicating the gospel. So what I believe we have here is a vision of the church being faithful, giving gospel testimony. There's two of them, two witnesses, because throughout the Bible, two was the minimum number of witnesses you'd need to give uh, official testimony. There are two because Jesus sent out his disciples two by two in Luke 10. And notice that the church gives its gospel testimony in sackcloth. Look at verse 3. Sackcloth in the Old Testament represented judgment and repentance. Because, guys, we have a heavy message to bring the world. Have you noticed? We have a heavy message to bring the world. The gospel's only good news once you first reckoned with the bad news, right? The gospel makes no sense and has no urgency until you first understand the bad news. It's a message of judgment and repentance before it's a message of grace and faith. And we see that in chapter 10 as well, when the little scroll is said to be both sweet and bitter. The gospel's like that, right? You all remember when you first came to faith, you had to feel the sting of the law first, right? Before you could feel the pleasure of God's grace in the gospel, amen? 
You had to feel that single law. You had to realize that you were a sinner and there was no way in the world for you to save yourself. There's a bitterness first and there's a sweetness. Remember last week we saw that God used tribu- uses tribulation in the world to bring the lost to repentance. Um, 11 shows us there's something more needed. Uh, it, it isn't enough that God would just send tribulation and difficulty upon the world to turn us to himself. He also needs to send something else. And 11 about that. He needs gospel witnesses to go forth. We need gospel witnesses. We, we need the gospel to be told to us, right? Tribulations alone wouldn't do it. Somebody needs to come in and give us the good news of the gospel. And so God sends his people out as witnesses into the world um, because he wants to save the lost. And, and if you're not a believer this morning, I, I want you to sense God's amazing love in this. Because John 3.16 says that God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves you so much he sent his own son to die for you. And not only that, he also is now sending his sons and daughters into the world at great risk, often of death, to share this message of the gospel. So not only did God give his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins, he's now giving forth his sons and daughters into the world. We think about people like Holly and Lorian and places uh, that they're in that are very dangerous and difficult. You think of your own witness now. Some of you guys may have been invited here by a Christian friend, or maybe you're given the live stream by a Christian friend. That was God's love to you, sending one of his sons or daughters out to you to bring you the good news of the gospel. So how do we win over the power of evil? According to this chapter, we we win through our testimony of the gospel. Guys, the gospel is the church's one and only message. And that's something really important for us to hear this year because there has been an amazing amount of confusion among Christians this year about what our message is on both sides of the political spectrum, right? I mean, we see the evils that are in our culture. Everybody wants the church to rise up and speak and say something and not be silent. But what do they want the church to say? Hopefully the gospel. Because that's the only message we've been given. And that's the message that defeats evil. And, you know, I'll just tell you as a pastor throughout this year, there's a real pressure, both sides of the political spectrum. You need to talk about this. You need to speak out about that. You know, the church shouldn't be silent. The church shouldn't be quiet. The church shouldn't be passive. Guys, we've never been quiet or passive or silent. We have consistently proclaimed the gospel in both the word and sacrament every single week. We've not missed a week. Um, If there's another message you think that would fix the world better than the gospel, you're going to be at odds with scripture, right? To be faithful and focused on this message is the way that the church defeats the power of evil. And I know you think, gosh, that sounds crazy. There's real evil in the world. Look at it. How would the gospel solve this? But Revelation 12:11 says this, that they have conquered him, and in the context there, it's Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and that they love not their lives even unto death. They did it through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. That's the way we win. That's the way we defeat the powers of evil. It's by spreading the gospel. And I'm just, you know, a little bit amazed at how controversial that is this year amongst Christians. That somehow it was like this year was so traumatic that suddenly the gospel is not the solution to the world's problems. We need something else. It's telling, you know. How about you? Not to beat you up this morning, but we could start there. Um, How about you? What message have you been most passionate about this year? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. Be honest before the Lord. What message have you been most passionate about this year? 
what would your friends say you're obsessed with? What would your friends say you always want to talk about? What would your kids say? I won't do that to you. But what would your kids say? Because they know. What would your kids say? What would your spouse say? You've been, what message you've been most passionate about this year? Guys, it's a spirit-filled church with gospel-filled mouths that destroy the works of Satan. That's a consistent theme. It's a spirit-filled church with gospel-filled mouths that take down the works of Satan. And so if you're tired of being silent or passive about the evil in the world, the thing you need to do is proclaim the gospel because that's what it looks like to do something. I know we all want to do something. That's something we can do. Anything else, guys, is putting a Band-Aid on a broken arm. The original seven churches here that received the revelation, they would, have known, they would have seen this chapter 11 and these two witnesses. They would have seen themselves in this. And they would have seen uh, the revelation telling them that the way of victory, the way to defeat the powers of evil, is through their faithful gospel witness. What else do we see here? We win the victory through God's protection. We win the victory through God's protection. Look at verse 5. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouths and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the skies, that no rain would fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, um, clearly, guys, this is symbolic language, and I know I've said that a bunch of times, but it's the book of Revelation, and that's what it is. It's It's a book of symbolic language. John told us in the beginning that he was writing in symbols. He immediately defined all the things he did as symbolic. Um, John doesn't intend us to think of literal fire coming out of our mouths here any more than he wanted us to think as Jesus has a literal sword out of his mouth, right? These are symbols. These are symbols of judgment. What we have here, guys, is a graphic illustration of God protecting his people. And we're reminded of the Old Testament, right? We have Elijah who called down fire from heaven, who stopped the rain. We have Moses who was able to turn water into blood and plagues. Um, but what else does it sound like in the Revelation? Can you think of something that came already in the book of Revelation that these things sound like? They sound like the trumpet judgments. If you look through chapter 8 and 9, especially 8, you're going to see that they look like the trumpet judgments. And what's really interesting and connects to this is that the trumpet judgments seem to have come from the prayers of God's people. Take a look at chapter 8. You really should look at this. It's cool. So you have in 7... In 6, you have all the seals coming out and uh, breaking those seals and all kinds of tribulations coming from that. And then in 7, you have the sealing and protection of God's people. And then in 8, it says this. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Which is interesting because it's super noisy until this point. Then I saw the seven angels who were standing before before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel stood before them at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer filled with it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." really interesting, right? There's silence. There's a pause. God's people pray. And then what happens? The judgments continue to hit the world. And so why are there chaotic tribulations that come upon the world? Partly because of the prayers of God's people for deliverance. Just like when God's people were in Egypt and they were praying for deliverance uh, that God would bring and plagues came, the same kind of thing happens here where it's partly in response to God's prayers, to, to people's prayers to God for 
for relief. Why do these chaotic judgments come upon the earth? Part of the reason is that God's responding in judgment to the mistreating of his kids. That's what we see here in chapter 11. God is not pleased with how his kids are being treated, and there are consequences on earth, just as there was in Egypt in the Exodus. And so 5 and 6 show us that God delivers us and protects us until our gospel work is done. Even in the midst of tribulation, I just want to ask you this morning, do you feel or are you literally beleaguered, <laughs> embattled, worn down? There's a lot of that kind of language throughout the revelation. Do you do you feel, you know, defeated? Do you feel like you can't go on? This passage reminds us that God defends and protects his people through tribulation. There's no reason for you to give up now. God is with you. He's behind you. And I'd say to some of you who are older or in a stage of life, you don't feel like there's as much for you to give anymore. Because Satan has two lies. Young people, he says you're too young to serve God, right? And to old people, he says you're too old. (laughs) In the middle, he just makes you too tired, right? Okay? So those are the three stages. If you're still alive, your gospel work isn't done. That's what this passage shows us. Henry Martin, he was a 19th century Anglican missionary. He spent his last six years of his life in India and in Persia, translating the Bible and giving uh, testimony of the gospel. And when he was asked about the dangers of the mission field, you know what Martin said? He said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. I'm immortal until God's work for me to do is done. And he died. He died at 31, really young. The tragedy wasn't a tragedy. His work was done, right? That's what we have here. God protects his church, and they are immortal until their work is done. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit made war with them and conquered them and killed them. This must be where Henry Martin got the idea that we are immortal uh, until God's work for us to do is done. But guys, notice that even in death, they can't be stopped. And even in death, you can't be stopped. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises out of the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This is very interesting language, isn't it? Like, isn't the book of Revelation fascinating? I mean, all these layers, you could spend so much time on this. Verse seven reminds us, guys, that our gospel witness will be met with intense opposition. Intense opposition. The church is under constant attack. And by church, I mean you guys are under constant attack as you bear witness to the gospel. And we're going to see in the next few chapters, 12, 13, and 14, that those attacks take different forms. Some of them are subtle. Some of them are overt. Ours are very subtle, mostly. In other places, they're a little bit more overt. But the Revelation describes the assaults on the church in all kinds of colorful language. Next week, we'll see in 12 that the church is described as a woman who's been chased into the wilderness by a dragon. It's kind of cool imagery, right? Or the church is described as a city under siege by the nations in verse 2 of this chapter. Here we see that the church is like two witnesses attacked by a beast from the bottomless pit. And those first century hearers would not have thought of this as something for someone really far away. They would have seen this for themselves. And they would have seen their particular beast, the emperor Domitian, as the one who's come to attack them. And this would have been a message of great encouragement to them. I know for us, you know, 21st century, living in a very peaceful place, we read a chapter like this and we're like, this is supposed to be encouraging? This is immensely encouraging, right? Um, And just to remind us of the symbolic language here, um, did you notice where their bodies lay? I know this is an intense sermon. Where their bodies lay? 
Their bodies lay in three places, which would be a little hard to do if this was a literal double murder scene, right? If this is a picture of the church, it makes sense. But if this is a literal double murder scene, this would be hard to do. Their bodies lay in what is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt and where the Lord was crucified. Three distinct places, right? That would be tricky to do. But what John's doing here is he's giving three places that were known for their intense opposition to God. You've got Sodom, a place so, you know, so overrun with immorality that he destroyed it with fire. You've got Egypt, the country that wouldn't let God's people go, defiant against God, and God judged them. And then you've got Jerusalem, the city where God himself was rejected and crucified. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's got this composite city that he talks about in the book of Revelation. It's the world's unified rebellion against God. And later on, it's called Babylon. It's this evil city. And so later on in the book, you've got like a tale of two cities, right? You've got the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God. That's the place that we are citizens of. And then you've got the city of this world, Babylon, and and the evil that it does. And those cities are in conflict. Um, There's a city of God and there's a city of man. And the the city of man is hostile to God. And we live right now in the city of man. The gospel is so irritating to the world that look at what happens in verse 9. And for three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange gifts. That's nice. Because of the two prophets and how much they have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Apparently, they're preaching the gospel. And maybe you guys have experienced this from both sides, that the preaching of the gospel can be tremendously irritating. You guys remember back before you were a Christian, you got that guy at work and here he comes, right? You're at lunch and you know what he's doing. He's carrying this gigantic book, right? He's got this look of determination. You're like, oh no, not him again. Tremendously irritating. And you know, from the other side, as you try to give the gospel, as sweetly as you try to give it, as lovingly as you try to give it, and you start and you let it out and it's like super irritating. You're like, oh, I didn't want to be irritating. This is such good news to me. I can't believe it's not to you, you know, but it's so irritating. And, and you see that these, the world rejoices when it sees that the church has died. It looks like it's died. This is a very grisly scene, very grisly. Um, there have been many times in history when the church has looked just like this. It's looked like a corpse in the streets. It's looked like the evil of the world had overcome the church and it was dead. Happened in China. Um, Mao's wife, they call her Madame Mao. Mao's wife, she helped lead the communist uh, cultural revolution in the 60s and 70s. And that was all about, she oversaw the uh, arrest and re-education of Christians. And if they couldn't be re-educated, they were uh, executed. And, And she went through this whole process of this kind of revolution And Madame Mao was able to say at one point, she said this, Christianity in China has been confined to the history section of the museum. It is dead and buried. There was a point where she could say that. But guys, today she's dead and buried. And there are more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party in China. Right? Isn't that amazing? That's what you have here in verse 11. Yeah, it's awesome. Take a look at 11. But after three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw. Right? To some degree, that happens now, right? As you see, a hundred million Chinese Christians. But this is speaking to something even more. It's speaking to our resurrection. The, The world's apparent victories over the church, guys, are empty 
and short-lived. Notice it was after three and a half days. How long was their time of witnessing? Three and a half years. This is a very small slice, right? Um, Christianity, Chesterton said this. He said, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew his way out of the grave. You love that? It's died many times and come back because it has a God who knows his way out of the grave. Guys, we win by dying. Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seeds of the church. And we've seen that throughout history. You know, the forces of evil come through, slaughter the church, leave their blood splattered all over. And what happens? Every one of those blood stains, a church rises up, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We preach Christ, we win. He protects us, we win. We die, we win. Even, even if you're never called to die for Christ, guys, you will die. And having given your whole life to Jesus and made all kinds of sacrifices that make no sense if there's no resurrection, it will look at the end of your life like evil one. When you're dead, it'll look like evil one. When you're dead, it'll look like death one. But guys, our death is not the end. We'll rise again. Just like these two witnesses, we're going to stand on our feet. We're going to dust ourselves off from being in the grave, and then we will reign in the world to come. It can't stop us. Revelation 11 reminds us, guys, that the world will be opposed to our gospel message. Let me ask you this. Do you find it hard to share the gospel with people? Actually, let me ask you this way. Does anyone find it easy to share the gospel with people? Right? You find it hard. Why? Because the world, the forces of evil, are opposed to it. You know, it's not just because we're timid, cowardly people, which we might have some of that too, but you're being opposed spiritually every time you share the gospel. I heard once someone say, Christians used to fear the raised fist. Now we fear the raised eyebrow, right? We used to, we used to fear the raised fist. Now we fear the raised eyebrow. Wait, did that eyebrow go up? Right? Is that person not happy with me? Guys, no matter what it costs, verse 11 shows us that we're going to be victorious in resurrection. We don't have to fear. We need to rage against the opposition we have spiritually of sharing the gospel. You have to rage against it. You have to rise up. You have to speak up. You can't be silent. You can't be passive. That's how we win, right? Spirit-filled church, gospel-filled mouths, taking down the powers of evil in the world. And no matter what it costs, it shows us in 11, we'll rise again. No matter what you lose, you don't have to lose your life for Christ in this life, um, but you lose all kinds of other things through what you gave, through time, through whatever your resources that you gave, whatever you gave to it. You lost relationships sharing the gospel. Whatever you lost to it, you will get back in the resurrection. And notice the resurrection really freaks the world out. Okay, look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all those who saw. Terrifying. When you're raised again, that's going to be a little terrifying to the world. Okay? It's going to be like a small hint, (laughs) right? That they were on the wrong side of history, that they were on the wrong side of God, right? When we are seen to rise from the dead. You know what else will freak them out anymore? Our ascension. Look at verse 12. And And then they heard a loud voice from heaven crying out, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Okay, this is, this is victorious, right? This is our victory in ascension. Um, I'm going to get into a little bit of controversy, but, you know, this is what would be commonly be called the rapture. Um, if you look at this, though, this is not an invisible secret rapture. Everybody's watching it, and it's freaking them out, okay? It's terrifying, right? So I don't, I don't see a secret rapture. I see a very visible 
rapture, a very visible coming up. Just as our resurrection will be a public event, I believe our meeting the Lord in the air will be a very public event. And I believe it's going to happen at the return of Christ. Look at the next verse, verse 13. And at that hour, a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so I see... Um, what happens is resurrection, caught up, meet him in the air, return, judgment. My end times chart is very simple. I'm going to show it to you. I drew it myself. It's, uh, it'll appear here. I drew this myself, and I know you're like, no way. That's amazing. Um, and I'm just being up front with you. My, my end times chart is very simple, okay? So we're here, and then at some point, resurrection, rapture, return, final judgment, new heavens and earth. Um, I can make one for you if you want. Um, so I believe that's what happens all at once. Jesus resurrects, raptures, returns. Um, does your chart though, does your chart have more details in mind? It probably does. I think this is the minimalist version. Okay. Your chart probably has more things in mind. And I just want to say to you this morning, that's okay. Okay. That's totally fine. I don't have a need to fight you on it, duke you out, divide over it. None of that. Right. Um, do you guys realize that none of the historic confessions and creeds make the timing of these events the standard of orthodoxy? Do you realize that? None of the historic confessions or creeds divide Christians over the timing of these events. So you don't have to either. Okay? Isn't that nice? Isn't that a nice burden lifted off of you? You don't have to go like, hey, so what are you? Are you pre-post, you know, whatever, and then be like, oh, I don't think we can hang. Okay, so for hundreds of years, the Christians never did that, right? That's a very modern thing for us to feel the need to divide over end times charts, right? Um, and so if yours has more parts than mine, I hope you'll accept me, okay? I certainly will accept you. Um, the historic creeds and confessions would accept both of us. So I think that's evidence we should accept one another, right? Okay, so Jesus rises up to meet his people from the grave, we come back with him as uh, we, we meet him as a greeting party. We come back with him as his royal procession. And then the final judgment. Look at verse 15. Then the seventh trumpet blew. Sorry. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks. Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have begun, you have taken your great power and begun to reign, and the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and the reward of your servants and the prophets and the saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, for the destroying of the destroyer of the earth. What's really cool here is we see, like, like the fall of Jericho, guys, when that seventh trumpet sounds, God's enemies are judged. The powers of evil come crashing down, and, and God's people get their promised land. You know, the kingdom of God will come. Blessing will invade brokenness. Pleasure is going to replace pain. Love and justice will reign. And that's because the greatest treasure of all, guys, God himself is going to come down to earth and be with us and make all things new. His very presence. That's what you see in verse 19. Take a look at it. 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and hail. That ark symbolizing the very seen and felt presence of God will be with us. God himself will be ours to enjoy forever. That's where the revelation's headed. So read even this afternoon, Revelation 21 and 22. That's where we're headed. And guys, I would call that winning. Okay? I don't know what you had in mind. But I would call that winning, the victory over the powers of evil. That's what you have this morning if you are united with Christ. If you're united with Christ, then you have his perfect life credited to you. If you are united with Christ, you have his perfect death that's removed your sin. If you're united with Christ, you have Jesus' resurrection. You will rise again bodily, new. You have his resurrection. If you're united with Jesus, his ascension is yours, his glorious ascension. You will meet him in the air. If, you, if you're united with Jesus, Jesus' reign is yours, both making the world new and you will reign in the world to come. The Lord's Supper, guys, tells us every week how this victory could be given to people like us. You're thinking, well, I don't deserve that. And you know what? I agree. You don't deserve it. And, and the Bible agrees on that. And I don't deserve it, right? How do we get these tremendous blessings and we get them through Jesus Christ? The Lord's Supper reminds us this victory is ours through Jesus, that God himself became a man. They lived a perfect life in our place. And then he died on the cross for our sins and was raised victorious. This bread reminds us that our rescue cost us Jesus's pierced body. And this cup reminds us that it was Jesus's very lifeblood that washes away our sin. If that's your hope this morning, we'd invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. Parents, make sure it's appropriate for your kids. If you have questions about that, definitely let me know. Let's pray. We thank you, our God and Father, for the hope that this bread and cup give us. That Jesus will return as triumphant king. That the dead, including us, will be raised. That all people will stand before you in judgment. And we face that day without fear. For you, our judge, are also our savior. May our daily lives of service aim for the moment when we will appear before him. When your son Jesus will present us to you, holy and blameless, washed in his blood. I thank you, Lord. Feed us with this so that we'll be strong to be your witnesses in the world. Let's take it together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take, eat, remember and believe that the body of Christ is the bread from heaven. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and drink. Remember and believe that the blood of Christ is the cup of salvation. Eternal God, Heavenly Father, you have been so gracious to us to accept us as living members of the body of your Son. Father, you've been so gracious to allow us by faith, for free, as a gift, to be treated the way your son Jesus deserves to be treated. Father, help that to rock us. Help that to just turn us around. Help that to shake us, invigorate us. Lord, help it to give us new desires, that we would desire the things you command and that we would love the things that you've given us to do in this world, that we would love the commission you've given us. 
Father, we know that we need our longings and our wants and our loves and our desires deeply altered. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel, by the power of the Spirit, does exactly that. We thank you for how our hearts are better now than when we came in. We pray, Lord, that as we go out into this world, as you send us out into the world, we pray you send us out in peace to be non-anxious witnesses in a cultural chaos. We pray, Lord, that you give us courage and strength to love and serve our neighbors, to love and serve you, to be very explicit about the gospel, to offer it to all who would hear. We pray, Lord, that this would gladden our hearts as it gladdens yours. And we pray, Lord, as we worship you, as we join the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the myriads and myriads of angels, and indeed at some point all of creation, we pray, Lord, as we worship you now, that it would be just a beautiful sound in your ears, that it would be an aroma to your nose and that we would bless your fatherly heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.